limited hospital resources is not uh, valid grounds for denying human rights. That the government spent untold billions of dollars on pushing an unnecessary vaccine that it should have spent on building hospitals, if that was the question. <clears throat> now, I would say that this phony argument is also based on the denial of early treatment, that the studies of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are proved conclusively that these drugs work and that the absolute denialism of the government and the their state media um, hench people is to suppress something that would have derailed the whole vaccine enterprise because these medications work so well that virtually nobody would have died from from it as we know you, you know 300,000 500,000 people died from covid not with covid but from covid before the vaccine era started and and that was due to to suppressing early treatment that was known and this and the early treatment issue was known before president trump ever said anything the minister of health in france in october of 2019 already changed the status of hydroxychloroquine from over the counter or something you just walk in the drugstore and buy. She changed it to prescription only to put a limit on how people could get it. She made phony arguments that it was genotoxic or that it's related compound chloroquine was genotoxic. This is a, was totally absurd. These are drugs that have been used in tens of billions of doses for more than 50 years in everybody, in, in pregnant women and elderly people and in, in babies and everybody completely safely used. So this was all part of pharma campaigns that it knew what was coming before even Fauci, Dr. Fauci knew it was going. Dr. Fauci appears to have known on January 6th from the FOIA emails. That was his first knowledge that there was a coronavirus circulating. So pharma knew well before that. And, and they had been working on the vaccines for this for 10 years. Moderna has been working on this for a long time. So they, they all knew this was coming. They were planning for this as the way they were going to take over the medical care space by mass vaccination campaign forced on the population by propaganda. And that was laid out in event 201. And I guess um, I have argued, I would like to hear what you think about this, that by overplaying their hand, by making illogical statements and false statements, meaning public health officials and government, and the forceful nature with which they tried to get people vaccinated and not address the adverse events and the obvious, that it drove people who had trusted vaccines to not only mistrust the advice they're getting on COVID-19, but really they're looking at childhood vaccines for the first time. They're thinking if the government's lying to me about this, what else could it be? And I think they've, they're now blaming anti-vaxxers for you know, vaccination status lapsing in people or the vaccination rates going down. But I would argue they have only themselves to blame because the way to build confidence in your vaccine system is to address shortfalls and assure the public you're constantly aware of and, and handling and improving vaccines when there are adverse events. But they've done quite the opposite. Well, that was journalist Charlotte Atkinson talking with one of our nation's leading epidemiologists, Professor Emeritus from Yale School of Public Health and the Yale School of Medicine, Dr. Harvey Risch. Dr. Risch was a leading advocate for treating COVID patients with hydroxychloroquine from the beginning of this pandemic. Just when our Dr. Pierre Corey was beginning to learn how effective ivermectin was proving to be in prevention and treatment of all stages of this new disease. Um, these doctors weren't really working together at that time, but 
what they've seen happen in the months that followed, what these two eminent physicians have seen in the dictates of government health officials, coupled with the PR from big pharma and unquestioning reporting from most media has brought these two brilliant men together. I am delighted to tell you that they're both here tonight and you're gonna hear from them and you're gonna have a chance to ask them both questions. Now, they're going to be really digging into the whole issue of what the hell ever happened to true evidence-based medicine. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the uh, creative director of this alliance. And our nurses are already on. As you know, they're here uh, behind the scenes answering questions that you have during the entire hour. But I'll be back with questions for these doctors after they really get into it with a good discussion of where they see things now and what has happened. So Pierre, Dr. Harvey Risch, welcome. Take it away. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Hey, Harvey, so great to see you. And thanks for joining us. Um, you know, I'll tell you a couple of things. I, I watched your recent interview with uh, Jan Jekelek on Epic TV, and it was just a great interview. And there's so many topics that you covered that I that I sort of want to dive deeper into. But um, here's where I want to start out. You and I have been through a journey. I think your journey started, actually, our journey started the same. It started with COVID. Um, but you were really um, focused on early treatment from early on um, and really sound, sensible, pragmatic um, approach or response to this virus. I want to say one thing really quickly. I was writing, um, I was working on my book today. And I was working on a chapter which describes like, the FLCCC in the early months. We, we were really focused on the hospital, not early treatment like you were. But Paul, you know, wrote a letter to um, people all around the world because he was astonished that nobody was recommending any treatment. They, they literally were not proposing any treatment. And in your interview with Yanya Kellick, you talked about how in an emergency, you don't need data for efficacy. And you wrote that paper early on, like proposing, like, let's go treat this thing. And I and I, I saw these really strong parallels to how Paul felt and, and your paper. And, and, and then I just want to finish with, you know, you, there was data suggesting that hydroxychloroquine had good efficacy. And let, let, let me be totally honest. We in the FLCCC, I'm going to put it more on Paul than me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Paul's not here, so I can do that. You know, we're really, um, we didn't we didn't embrace hydroxychloroquine and we got fooled. I mean, we learned a lot about evidence-based medicine in, in these three years. And I thought I knew a lot before, um, but I've learned so much more. I mean, you've been a student and even a critic of evidence-based medicine for, for decades now. And so, I mean, you're well ahead of us, but we, we really did unfortunately put a primary emphasis on the randomized control trials. And I'll say we got hydroxychloroquine wrong for a long time, but, you know, tell us about your story early on with, with, with the pandemic and uh, you know, trying to advocate for early treatment. And, and also that issue about you don't need efficacy data in an emergency. Well, it's really great to be having this discussion with you and, and with everybody. Um, let me just start with the observation that scientists believe their own work. It's kind of 
par for the course that we overbelieve our own studies and we discount other people's studies. And one of the things that the physicist Richard Feynman said in a, an essay in 1974 is that to be a, a, an ethical scientist, you have to disbelieve your own work. You have to bend over backwards to prove to yourself that what you think is right is actually right. That's above and beyond normal ethics. No, to, for the general public, you just have to not lie. You just have to be objective. But to yourself, you have to go beyond that. And what happened to me is that at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm a member of the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, and the Academy struck a committee to help advise the governor how to end the lockdown. We weren't the governor's official committee. We were a second committee that chose a number of us who were kind of out of the box thinkers. So there was me and my dean who are epidemiologists. There was a cardiologist. There was a clinical psychologist, a physicist, a jet engine designer for who knows about airflow and things like that. And so we kind of pooled our ideas. And my, my task was to look at outpatient treatment. And that's what, so I went to the literature and started looking and there was hydroxychloroquine that had already been started to be used in April, like April, 2020. And remdesivir was on the, the you know, in, in what people were talking about. So I included that. And I wrote a long essay that was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology talking about the evidence to date at that point for hydroxychloroquine and the safety uh, for hydroxychloroquine. And it was clear that while the evidence was strong, if not completely proving the case, the evidence for safety was overwhelming. And so I wrote an article about this why don't we try it? We're not doing anything. There's no opportunity cost here because people are dying and we need something and telling them to go home is futile. And there's no, there's no point in not intervening with something that's harmless. And so that was the gist of my essay at the time. And of course, uh, there was some pushback from some colleagues at Yale and Harvard who had never treated any COVID outpatients and the nerve of them to say something about that, you know, that was just absurd. But th then the point is that since that time, so that was when there were five studies of hydroxychloroquine and about maybe a thousand patients who had been treated by various uh, doctors across the country that I knew about. And then the, by the next year, year and a half, there had been nine studies all showing the same thing about hydroxychloroquine, that it cuts risks of hospitalization in outpatient, it cuts risk of hospitalization in half and mortal mortality by three quarters. And that's just kind of bare hydroxychloroquine, not in FLCCC type regimens, not, you know, that, that are more than just a, a solo drug. And, and so the, the evidence is essentially proof at this point of the benefit of this drug. We can argue about the magnitude of benefit, but the evidence is proof that, that this medication works for its application. And that's how I got pulled into it. And I'm not willing to say to lie about what nature says. I just say my best understanding of it and leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, you know, what I, you know, I taught sort of taught evidence-based medicine. I mean, I, I was a medical educator. I trained residents and fellows and we had journal clubs, right. Where we, you know, dissect uh, studies and, I almost laugh at my understanding of how to interpret a study back then. But one of the things that is that bugged me throughout my whole career is what 
I, I borrow the term from, you probably have read the article, it was written by a psychiatrist some years ago, it's called The Church of Randomized Controlled Trial Fundamentalism, or The Church of RCT Fundamentalism, right? Uh, I don't know, but was that in the Norman Deutsch article in Tablet Magazine? Yes, that was it. Yes. That was it. And like, that was like music to my ears. So, you know, what happened, like going back to hydroxychloroquine with, with I think, with Paul and, and a little bit with me, is that we put the RCT data, which we later learned is fraudulent manipulated, the, you know, fake trials, we, we put way more emphasis on that. And, you know, you wrote this article in, in um, Brownstone Institute, which is so brilliant. It just really kind of dug really deep into the fact that RCTs are not necessarily the best available evidence or the best way to study an intervention. There are many other ways. And you also made other points, which is that, and th this is a point that Paul and I always agreed on, is that you want to look at the totality of evidence, all of the evidence, right? But I will say at the beginning, I think we still put RCT data on this higher plane. Um, can you tell, can you talk to like our listeners about what a randomized control trial is and what an observational control trial is. And the fact that we're literally in a state where science, medical sciences, they now don't listen to any other study designs, but randomized control trials and really big ones, which only few people can do. Well, so that you got a, a number of things in there that are interesting commentary. Um, the, the issue of randomized controlled trials is a plausibility argument that I argued in that essay that people believe if you randomize, then everybody has to be equal except for the randomization. And that is true, but it's a matter of degree, not of yes or no. And so when you see somebody say, I did, we did this big trial with hundreds of thousands of participants, just ignore that because that's not what the size of the trial is. Go look and see how many outcomes there were in the trial. If the trial is infections, see how many infections there were in the arms of the trial. Or if it's death, see how many deaths there were. Though that is the size of the trial. So for example, in the initial vaccine efficacy trials, looking at infection as the, the outcome, there were 44,000 people in the trial. So you would think a trial with 44,000 people would, would be big. It would cost a huge amount of money to do, which it did. But what happened is when you get to the outcomes, there were eight um, infections in the treatment group and 162 in the placebo group. 162 is, is a fair number. That, that is okay for a randomized trial, but eight is not. And the, the problem with randomization is it only works when you have large numbers of outcome events in, in the trial. So for example, if you flip a coin 10 times, and you get seven heads and three tails or vice versa, that happens by chance all the time. In fact, it, it has a probability of about a third of happening if you do that. And so you'd think, well, seven heads and three tails is more than a factor of two that biases what should be 50-50. Instead, now it's seven over three, two and a third. That's a big deal. The flip side of that is if you, do, uh, if you flip a coin 100 times, the chance of getting 70 heads and 30 tails is very close to zero. It's like 0. 0.00002 or something like that. So that is the same ratio of 70 over 30 or seven over three. It's very unlikely in 100 people and very likely in 10 people. 
And so this is the problem with randomization. In order for randomization to work, to balance the, the arms of the trial, there have to be largest numbers of people, at least 50 to 100 people in each outcome group of the trial, in, e in each of the, the treated people and the not treated, the placebo or control people, there have to be 50 to 100 outcome events, the, the infections or deaths or whatever. And that just did not occur in any of these trials. And that's why the trials are not randomized. The randomization is inadequate. Now, if you do a randomized trial and the randomization didn't work well, what are you left with? You're left with a crummy non-randomized trial because in observational trials, which is instead of randomizing the treatment that a patient gets in a non-randomized trial, you go and see what patient, what uh, treatment the patient took. So either the patient decided, the doctor helped the patient decide, they, they worked it out together, whatever the, the, the protocol was for how patients got their medications. Everybody knows if you do a non-randomized trial that people can choose to take medications for reasons. And so you try to measure everything in the world that would uh, account for those reasons. So you measure how sick they were, what comorbidities, what chronic conditions they had, um, you know, whether they were obese, had diabetes and things like that, how old they were, and everything in the world you can think of that might affect the results you measure. And then when you analyze these non-randomized but controlled trials, you adjust for all of that. So you take account statistically of all the things that could bias the trial and you adjust for them, you account for them, you control for them in the analysis, in the non-randomized trial. But in a randomized trial, nobody ever does that because they trust the randomization. So you don't have to do anything like that. But if the trial is so small, then you're stuck because you didn't measure all that stuff and the randomization isn't proven to have worked well. And what are you gonna do? How are you gonna analyze it? You're stuck with analyzing it and basically pretending that the randomization worked when you have no idea whether it did or didn't. And yeah. that's what we're stuck with. And, you know, so you you brilliantly point out, because I, I actually didn't know, I, I I had not ever thought or even been taught the depth to which uh, the, sort of the weakness or the failure of, of purported randomized control trials. But the, the, the topic that I've long focused on, and I love how you talk about literally the strengths of observational control trials, which is that you can control for confounders. Harvey, you know this as well as I. Doctors are literally indoctrinated to pray at the altar of the randomized <laughs> controlled trial, right? I mean, literally high-impact medical journals, they won't publish observational control trials, right? Which is, you know, for the audience, it's where it's not prospective, where you randomize and give, you know, treatment to this group and a placebo to this group. It's where you look backwards and you look at groups of patients that got the treatment and didn't. And obviously, there are reasons why someone got a treatment. And usually the reason why they got the treatment, and you've mentioned this before, is that they tend to be sicker. So when you see a positive benefit, it actually is even stronger evidence that it works, right? Because the sicker patients got it. Um, but they're just discredited in medicine. I mean, I literally... in. in Nobody believes anything unless it comes out of a randomized control trial now. Well, this is why epidemiologists started our own scientific research journals, because there was a lot of discrimination against epidemiology in medicine and clinical medicine for quite a while, trying to get our papers published in the clinical journals 
usually fell flat because we had reviewers who did not understand epidemiology and editors who didn't understand epidemiology. And for example, when you see a randomized trial and you look at the demographic table, the table one, that's the perfunctory table that has to describe everybody in the trial, you'll see that they list the treated people and all of their different factors, age, sex, you know, height, weight, whatever. And, and then the, the controlled placebo treatment in columns, and then they look at statistical differences. Well, that's nonsense. And the reason is nonsense is if the trial's randomized, then everything that happens in those data is random. It happened random. by chance because that's what you did. You don't have to measure whether it happened by chance because it did happen by chance. Yep. It makes no sense. But what does make sense is looking at the distributions of the factors. So for example, if two thirds of the, the treated patients are male and two thirds uh, of the uh, placebo patients are female, you have a big difference in their, their gender uh, distribution uh, according to the treatment group. And that could have occurred by chance if the trial isn't big enough if the randomization didn't work well enough. So, okay, let's say that the trial was large enough that that didn't happen in all of the patients, but it still might've happened in the outcome patients, in the treated patients who died might've been all male and the treated and the placebo patients who died might've been all female. Well, how are you gonna deal with that in a randomized yeah. trial if, if the, 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 the outcome patients, the, the ones who died are 10, 12 people, you just can't. And, and so that's the problem. Nobody ever des describes the problem that confounding does not, that we've been talking about, the difference in the outcome people according to something besides the treatment. If that different, it's, what matters is how much there's a discrepancy in those distributions. The, yeah. Whether the, the two thirds of them are this or one third of them are that, the two thirds and one thirds is what matters, not whether it happened by chance. Well, epidemiologists have known this for 50 years that that confounding, what we've been talking about as confounding, is not something that you measure by chance because if you have it in your data, you're stuck with it. The next trial down the road might not have it and, and they don't have to deal with it, but yours, if you, you're not lucky uh, and you have this confounding, then you have to deal with it. It doesn't matter that it happened by chance, but, whatever but the reason Harvey, happened. The, the you know, the depth of knowledge and expertise you have in, you know, statistical analysis and, and analyzing and, and making conclusions from data, most doctors are not, have, you know, very superficial knowledge, and they literally consider randomized controlled trials, remove confounders, observational trials, there's always this unmeasured confounder. And that's why when I read your article on the Brown, like, I love the fact that you said, we can you know, control for confounders and make things equal. In fact, you almost made an argument that an observational control trial could in many ways be stronger than a randomized control. That's not taught. That's not taught at all. In fact, well, you know, observational control trials are derided and dismissed. So uh, I've been, before I retired, I was teaching for a few years, a course called litigational epidemiology. That was mostly uh, pharmacoepidemiology, studies of, of drugs and vaccines, uh, related to kinds of outcomes and their antecedent conditions as to why people take those, those medications. And so I started thinking about randomized trials and the evidence they provide. And I, of course, I did, after doing this for a couple of years, I came across um, a paper written by um, Angus Deaton, who is a Nobel Prize winning econom uh, economist and statistician at Princeton, who says everything that I've said 
you know, except he lays it out much more statistically than, than I I have. I kind of say heuristically, and saying the same thing. And in his opinion, also that non-randomized controlled studies can do better because you know more about the disease you're studying. Now I would say that with a caveat, and the reason is that in 1985, randomized trials would have been better than non-randomized trials because we didn't know about the diseases we were studying so well then. But between 1985 and 2005, a huge amount of knowledge about the etiology of various chronic conditions and infectious diseases was learned. And because of that, doctors and, and researchers know what to measure in these studies. And so that's why it's a totally different ballgame now than it was 20 or 30 years ago when less was known about the diseases we were studying. Now we know what to measure and we measure all that stuff. Yeah. And I've made that argument as well. Like, and I also studied, this is before COVID, you know, propensity matched uh, studies, which is where you kind of control and, and balance out all of those confounders. They've been shown to be equal or even better than randomized control trials, but yet they're they're generally, you know, on that hierarchy of, of, of evidence, um, they're placed lower. But let, let's, I, I want to go to like more, less statistical and kind of evidence thing, but what shocked me with COVID is the behavior of the high impact medical journals. Because this is what I observe is that the high impact medical journals in COVID are only the studies published in there is what moved headlines and changed narratives. Um, and oftentimes in a bad, bad way. And I basically learned how corrupt those journals were. They censored any studies, they would not publish studies that would not support the goal of literally pharma, right? Um, and they would only publish oftentimes fraudulent studies to support the goals of pharma. And, you know, obviously then I had to read about the decades of, of writings like Marsha Angel and her book about how controlled those journals are. But I will tell you, that was an education for me and Paul in COVID. And Paul's been one of the, he's the most highly published practicing intensivist, you know, in the history of our specialty. And he had to learn that lesson. How long did you know that? How how absolutely corrupt and curated the science that's being put forth in journals are, in high-impact journals? Well, when I was um, in first-year medical school, so we're talking about mid-1970s, um, my classmates and I were already rejecting uh, pharma gifts, stethoscopes and freebie books and, and things like that. We didn't quite totally do it, but we talked about it at least recognizing all the pharma corruption that was trying to, blandishments, I guess, as you would call it. Um, and I think that it's been, pharma will, will do anything and everything that it can within nominally legal grounds to try to push its medications that it thinks work through, through the regulatory process and into marketplace. And I think that pharma, it's regular, the way it does this is it now in today's dollars, it spends a billion dollars to develop drugs because most drugs that, that they work on don't work and it's only very few that actually come to fruition. Then they spend 2 billion marketing the, the, the drug in advertisement, paying off doctors and, and all of that that we, we know and journals. And then they sell 20 or 30 billion. Meanwhile, they put 4 billion in escrow to cover the legal exposure that they're going to have from the legal cases. And so, you know, they're up 25 billion in the net and that's how that's their, their game plan. 
So they know that there's liabilities that they're going to have to deal with. And so, and, th and this is a cycle that they repeat. So they know that they're going to use every trick of the trade. And that's, for example, why we have clinicaltrials.gov, why, why protocols for randomized trials have to be registered so that pharma can't do 10 trials and then select the one by chance that worked and, and ignore or discard the other nine that didn't work because the drug doesn't really work very well. They all have to be registered. It can't um, set a, a principal hypothesis, a principal outcome of interest in a trial, and then midway through the trial, switch it to another one because they unblinded it and saw the one that, that they originally proposed wasn't working well. Well, oops, I, I guess they did that in remdesivir anyway, but- I, I was gonna know. say, Harvey, let me interrupt you. I mean, that's, you know, the laws and the rules, they, they're they written where they're, they're supposed to be there to protect us, to, to kind of support good science, but they've done that repeatedly. I mean, they did that in remdesivir, and then they the NIH did it in their recent, um, you know, uh, ivermectin trial. They literally changed the endpoint in the middle of the trial to show that ivermectin didn't work. Well, right, and you know, there's there's so much ridiculous smear that's gone on with these medications that any clear thinking person, like when I started out on this, I could not understand where this media idiocy was coming from. I'm talking about treating outpatients. I review outpatients. I'm only interested in hospitalization and mortality. I really don't care about how long people are symptomatic and I don't care about their uh, antibody titers and, and viral you know, titers in, the, in their nose passages. None of that matters. What matters is death and backing up from that hospitalization. Those are the real risks. So why are they talking about all this other nonsense stuff? And why are they talking about hospital studies? I'm talking about outpatients and they're, they're, they're saying it doesn't work in hospital patients. You know, all of this was going on. At first I thought this was just incompetent media like I've experienced earlier in my career. And then I realized it was systematic. You know, why was this systematic? So there was obviously forces pushing them into this. And I've taken to be calling the media now the state controlled media, no more mainstream media, it's state controlled media. But I think the medical journals are state-controlled journals or pharma-controlled journals, you know, yep. in the same way. This is what we've been living through. So medical evidence now is what I call Wild West. Even the, the preprint servers are being biased and rejecting papers that offend their narrative structures uh, because of who funds them. And so every doctor, every researcher has to review the literature for their, their own so, you know, sanity. I mean, I think you cannot trust reviews of, of papers as basic evidence. You can't trust media reports as, as evidence. You have to go back to every paper and try to make sense of it. And it's laborious. It takes time and effort and, and critical thought. And, and that's the only way you can make a case for any of this stuff. It's what I've done for hydroxychloroquine. And I've done it for ivermectin too, by the way, I think, you know, yeah. and, um, and I think th this is how you do science in the time of, a, uh, of intellectual adversity. Yes, I like that. Intellectual, I mean, my phrase is what appears in those journals, and I really call out the high impact because it seems like, just like with the decades of evidence-based medicine, we now only put value on large, apparently rigorous randomized controlled trials. That's the only thing that matters. Everyone pays, doesn't pay attention to other data and generally from high impact journals. And what I say is, what appears in those journals 
is what they allow to appear in those journals. So if you're only looking at those journals to guide you and your knowledge about medicine or therapies, you have to, under, I mean, every average doctor has to understand that you're looking at a very curated and manipulated view of what science really knows. And, and you know, one of the things in your interview, you know, you talked about, which is, um, you know, the orthodox physician, like the, those in the system who are in that believe those precepts, which is, you know, only RCTs, only from the best journals. I mean, it's led them to deliver horrendous medical care. And there's an outrage in this country about the orthodox physician. And but here's the thing, Harvey, you know this, the orthodox physician doesn't doubt themselves. They believe they're acting on the best available evidence and science. And any patient or anyone else who doubts them is uneducated, ignorant. And, you know, th there's, there's a real clash now because the orthodox physicians don't know that. I call them, I don't use the word orthodox. I use system physicians, like those employed by the system. But, you know, what are we going to do about that? Well, so you know that David Sackett, the father of evidence-based medicine, said in 1996, trying to defend evidence, the, the term, the, the concept of evidence-based medicine, that physician, good physicians use uh, the best available evidence. Well, that was nonsense even then. These are, are, are you know, anodyne statements that are actually false, that you use all valid evidence, yep. not the best evidence. And in fact, if you look in, in law, there is a large handbook called the Manual of Scientific Evidence. And it's put out, I think, by the National Academy Press or, or something like that. And there's a chapter on a long chapter on epidemiology. There's a long chapter on biostatistics. And in the chapter on epidemiology, I think that part of it was written by Justice Margaret Berger. She says that scientific evidence needs to use all available relevant valid evidence and that major committees and uh, regulatory agencies do that and so for somebody to come out and claim that the best evidence is oh well these are high quality studies you know yep. the study quality is the most subjective thing in the world that only adds noise and bias to evaluation of a literature Everything has to be considered. How you weight them and 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 incorporate them into your subjective judgment of causation is a different question th than um, only considering so-called high-quality studies that are are cherry-picked for various yep. reasons. Um, I, I think that that we've been led down a path for a purpose here. And you just have to back up. You know, for example, the thing that one of the things that galled me the most was when Tony Fauci was sitting on the couch next to Deborah Burks saying that here I'm I'm giving you the results, uh, brand new, fresh results of the remdesivir trial. And we stopped the trial four days early because letting it run the, the next four days would only be dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And we know how it's going to turn out. That was scientific misconduct 101. That was stopping a trial early because they had unblinded it, because they had looked at what the results were doing. They stopped at a point where they were showing benefit. They picked an outcome that was more or less irrelevant that, as to um, days yep. in hospital as opposed to whether the patients lived or not. You know, And yep. this is absolute scientific misconduct 
brazenly spouted from the head of, of our COVID advisory committee in the, the Oval Office on national TV. Yep. The brazen scientific misconduct is something that I've deeply studied and written about on my Substack, and I think you've read some of some of that. And it, it's um, that, that that's another thing. I mean, the 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 depth of the corruption and control of of the medical sciences. And they, you know, here's another example. Like when I when I would lead journal clubs, you know, you you kind of have that rote way, you know, to look at a study. Did it do this? Did it do that? And one of the things, right, was always. Um, what were the conflicts of interest? So that was always something that we reviewed, you know, who, who funded the study, who did the study. And I will just tell you, although we put caution when we saw conflicts, we were like, you know, that should be considered. Harvey, now when I read a study, I start with the conflicts and then I stop. I mean, you see these big studies in these big journals. The conflicts are as long as my arm. These are people who literally have their careers funded by pharma. And not only do I put a caution on whatever that study is, I stop. Harvey, I cannot believe a study that was conducted by 20 researchers, 18 of which either have stock options or literally make their money off of pharma grants. So one of the things that people don't generally realize, and you read a scientific study, you think it's kind of objective, they've described everything in the, in the methods and the results sections of the paper, and yet you know that for every epidemiologic study, there's an equal and opposite epidemiologic study. So how in the world could there be real methods and, and real science if there's so much contradictory evidence? And part of the reason for that is you don't actually know everything that the investigators do from what they write. And so when I was teaching students in, in my advanced epidemiologic methods course, I would say there's three different levels to look at what a study shows. One is you read the authors, you read the abstract. That'll tell you one thing. The other is read the, uh, and the author's conclusions. That's one thing. Then you look at the results themselves and you see what the results show. That may not be what the authors are claiming the results show. Right. Then you put on your critical thinking cap and say to yourself, well, is all this stuff consistent? Is every, does everything here make sense? Do these results in table three match up to what they said in the text about table two and, and all this kind of stuff? And make sure that it seems consistent and you don't see anything fatally flawed. So that, that is a deeper level, but still doesn't go deep enough. And the reason for that is not everything you need to know is necessarily in the paper. Sometimes there's more in the supplements and you have to go and wade and delve into the supplement files to find out all the tricks that they might have used where they kind of inadvertently told you about them. And But the real bottom line is you have to know the integrity of the investigators. My yes. wife has said this to me many times. All these studies come out every day. There's a new finding that, that such and such food causes such and such other outcome. How do you know whether any of that is real? And the answer is, ultimately, you have to know the honesty of the investigators and what they did behind the scenes and how well that is portrayed in the paper itself, because not everything is portrayed accurately and honestly. And you, you only know the investigators because you've worked with them over years and decades, and you know the reliability of what they do, and, and they're your colleagues in your field, and that's really the only way to know this stuff. And we don't know that. When there are conflicts of interest, you, know, you don't know that at all, and you have no real way of validating what's in the science that they supposedly did. No, it's well well said, Harvey. So let me, let me change gears here, because um, I know you've talked about this, and I think it's a, a really frightening topic, but, you know, 
we all have this concern about these new ICD-10 codes. Um, can can you help make that understandable to our audience? Like what what's going on with that, and what are the implications? Well, the the World Health Organization decided to create ICD codes dealing with COVID vaccination. In fact, they created codes for all vaccination. Uh, and there's a number of different codes for all sorts of arcane aspects of didn't take the vaccination because it was pers persuaded by some group not to do it. <laughs> As if there's what? a code for that. There's right. a code for that? Yes. Um, but that not a doctor, hold on, Harvey. You're telling me like a doctor when they take my history and they determine that I haven't been vaccinated for something, they can put a code in the chart that I wasn't vaccinated because I was dissuaded by some group? Yes. Oh, come on now. I know. Uh, but anyway, let's let's defer that to COVID. So in the COVID vaccines, they created only two codes. One code, these are Z28.310, which means that's the code for unvaccinated, never has taken any COVID vaccines and Z28.311, which is what they call partially vaccinated. Partially vaccinated means got vaccinated at some point, but now at the time the code is being entered, they don't comply with what the CDC defines as fully up-to-date vaccination. So wow. this is, of course, a moving goalpost, but there is no code for fully vaccinated. Now, the reason for these codes, the codes have two purposes. One is that they represent billing entities that insurance companies use and Medicare and Medicaid use for paying doctors and hospitals, clinics and, and so on for services that they provide. And they have to have reasons describing the procedures that were done and the efforts that doc, the, uh, the doctors used and, and so on. So all of this is descriptive information that's used for, for billing and insurance purposes. Secondly, the insurance companies monitor the, the relationships of exposures and outcomes to know what's worth paying for. So an insurance company may say, we're not paying for your fourth MRI of the same joint because the first one was good enough and, and the, the subsequent ones don't show enough that it, that it really matters for your health outcome. So they monitor all of this stuff to try to develop relations relationships that they can use for keeping their costs down. And at the same time, these codes are also used by health researchers to correlate the various exposures and uh, that people have in terms of toxic exposures that have codes and different diseases that have codes in, in terms of other diseases and other outcomes that they could have to try to um, learn etiologic relationships. So there's a value for that. Now come to COVID and the vaccines. Well, if there's no code for fully vaxxed, what information is there to be able to do a scientific study when the people who you're most interested in in following up aren't being represented. You know, that if you're interested in looking at a comparison between unvaxxed and fully vaxxed people, yeah. then you need to know who the fully vaxxed people are. You can't just say everybody is considered fully vaxxed, except we'll just subtract out the unvaxxed and the partially vaxxed, because the coverage of these codes is, is a very, very small part of the total population because not everybody gets codes entered because it doesn't apply to most people at most times unless they have some um, medical you know, intervention visit with a doctor that, that's relevant for recording the codes. So most people don't have that information. And so you can't presume anything about who's fully vaxxed. So this can only be used for tracking unvaxxed and partially vaxxed people through some other database system where they can be followed up 
for other things in life that have databases tracking them. And that, in fact, was the stated goal of the insurance company personnel who discussed whether it was feasible to put these codes into place, which they were put in last July, I believe, in, in 2022, and go somehow official April 1 of, of this year. So the, the purpose of this can only be presumed to be nefarious because there's no scientific purpose. Right. And the other thing is, the reason why there's no code for fully vaxxed is, think about it. If you know people who are fully vaxxed and then they have a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, two months later, you can compare people with heart attacks to being fully vaxxed versus not being vaxxed. And you can do your etiologic study and look at relationships of vaccination status to harmful outcomes. Harvey, you said it so well. You can only presume nefarious intentions. Because they're literally not doing a scientific and they're biasing it so that you can't study fully vaccinated people to actually show harmful effects. Let me ask you a question. If let's say I go to a doctor, I don't see myself in front of any doctor unless I'm in a car crash. Um, But if they ask me, are you vaccinated? And I say, none of your business. And I refuse to answer. What code will that lead to? Okay, so right now, as I understand it, there's no obligation of doctors to put anything into any coding system that's not relevant to what they are going to submit bills for. So if COVID status and, and vaccination status is not relevant to anything, unless you're having a uh, vaccine adverse reaction, in right. which case they could charge for, for helping you treating your adverse reaction, then your, your vaccination status might be relevant, except that not being vaccinated is not an exposure. It's a, uh, you know, partially vaccinated might be an exposure. So, but, but where this really applies is to Medicare patients who come for annual physicals. Those patients fill out questionnaire forms that the doctors are required to complete on various pieces of information. One of the, the pieces of information in that is the vaccination status of the individual that Medicare is asking about. Doctors have to fill out that form and complete at least 70% of the answers in order to get, to get paid the Medicare 4% bonus payment. And so there's a financial incentive for doctors to do that. Now, so you go, you, you know, you're a Medicare patient, you go for your annual physical, the doctor says, fill out this form, or, or I'm asking you some questions that I need for, for to see how your, your preventive health is doing, and gets to uh, have you been vaccinated? And you say, I'd rather not give you that answer. And the doctor says, well, I'm required to ask that question. And, and I, you say, well, you've asked the question, but I'm not required to answer the question. Yeah. And then the doctor says, well, I'm going to put in uh, the information anyway, whether you answer it or not. And then you say, if you put in the information for me without knowing the answer, then you are potentially putting in false information about me that may have legal consequences, which you should be certain of before you would do something like that. And then the doctor might say, well, I can't treat you anymore because you know, this is too much a, a, of a risk for me. And you say, well, why don't you just not answer that question and answer a few others that gets you your 4%. Yeah. This is the kind of conversation that's oh. likely to ensue. Insane. Oh no! Oh no! So, so Betsy, we should do questions, but um, <laughs> I, I do want to. I do want to sort of ask Harvey to kind of comment, and, and I'm just borrowing. I'm channeling my inner Jan Yakelik from Epic TV, who's such a brilliant interviewer. But he asked you a question, and I loved your answer. 
you know, you, he asked you like, where do we go from here? How do we fix this, right? And particularly in the context of like the orthodox physicians and, and the fact that the, the evidence and the guidance is so rigid, controlled and curated, and it's leading to really bad care. How do you see us, how do you see that getting better? So what you don't see in the state controlled media is discussion of all of the telemedicine doctors and in-person doctors who have been ignoring all of those strictures, the, the command medical instruction system and treating patients as patients uh, uh, in the normal way of doing medicine who have used hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and antibiotics and steroids and vitamins and, and you know yep. the whole recipes for all of this for the last two and a half or three years. And to the point where my knowledge is that they've treated probably close to half a million patients by now with these medications without getting a lot of public attention. Some have gotten it, some have gotten pushback, some have gotten called to their medical licensing boards over this. Um, but by and large, this has been going on sub rosa for the people who've, who, who've known. Now, a lot of, because I've been in the media a bit, people have emailed me. I've gotten hundreds, if not thousands, of emails saying, I've got COVID, what do I do? And I send them to you, to FLCC. Yeah. I sent, I use your lists, you know, of physicians. I've used the early COVID care lists of physicians and and, and the care. Now we have the wellness company, which is the, the telemedicine group that I'm affiliated with. Um, and and my free doctor, you know, is, is another one. There there is all of the these uh, telemedicine uh, groups that have been treating patients quietly and very very well with with negligible numbers of, of deaths throughout all of this, yeah. and it's worked well for the people who have been attuned to the non-state controlled media, and yeah. that that's been the way it's worked. Now, what I would have said about this is, if you'd asked me this question a year ago. I would have had a better answer of than what I would say now, which is you can gather from what I said about the ICD codes, that my response is choose the path that's important for you and know that there are a lot of other people out there who are doing the same thing, which means bucking the system to make the gears stop. Mm -hmm. And this is, so people go out and protest and they have hundreds of thousands of people protesting, for example, in European cities that nobody ever knows about because the regular media doesn't cover it. Yep. But people have done all these protests and the governments have just laughed at it. That, uh, you know, that, that protests are good and make the people protesting feel good like they've accomplished something, but actually accomplishes very little. What accomplishes is what Mahatma Gandhi did, which is to put sand in the gears, to make a, a, a presence and do actions that block the ability of the malefactors to do what they want to get done over your freedom of choice, over your relevant choice, over your ethical choices. And that's what we all should have been doing, and we should have been told to be doing this. And um, how that manifests in terms of everybody, well, I think a, a year and a half ago, I was asked on Mark Levin if I had young children in school in California and they mandated COVID vaccination, what would I do? And I said, I would take them out of school and homeschool them. And yep. well, now we have 10% of the American public homeschooling their kids, not just for, for COVID vaccination reasons, for other you know reasons that we all know, that this is a viable alternative that people did by choosing alternative choices and behaviors and actions that solve their problems 
in the time that they can with the best way they can. Now, this is requires courage, to be honest. The and people money. Lost, and money, right. But the people who lost their jobs because they refused to get vaccinated, especially if they'd already had COVID, if they had, if everybody had done this, if, if they had organized like a union in a hospital to say, all of us doctors are going to basically go on strike because of this uh, policy of, of your hospital, the hospital would not have been able to carry it out. The problem is fear. That yeah. there was so much fear, fear porn, propagandized fear, not only for the general public, but doctors as well, and politicians as well believed in the fear porn. And that's what drove the inability of people to put on their thinking caps and think if we band together and refuse to go along, that they won't be able to inflict these policies on us. But that is the way out, is to, to, to say no and put your foot down. Yeah, I say do not comply. That's one. But, you know, the way in which uh, the, your conversation with Jan, I'll just finish here. But, you know, you started to talk about, you know, the way forward is recognizing the power of competition. Right. And these orthodox uh, or system docs that I call, um, you know, the kind of care that they're able to deliver is, is really going to is not only substandard, it's hurt many. And I think there's a lot of people who've recognized that those doctors like me, I'm outside the system now. I have my private telehealth practice. I, I'm actually practicing right now under the jurisdiction of a Crow Indian tribe. So states can't come after me. Um, and, you know, those who are free, who can, you know, really use the evidence and, and really use whatever they want without restriction, that's going to be very attractive to patients. And as we grow and more patients come to us, What's going to happen to the orthodox and system docs, right? Is that they're going to have to they're going to have to adapt, and and maybe that'll have to loosen. And I I, I hope that kind of dynamic happens as we go forward. Um, I, think, uh, Betsy, I think what's going to happen. Uh, well, we have yeah. a lot of questions. I'm sure. Let me, just, sure. let me just respond to that. I think what's going to happen yeah. first is smear. That the more their economy is damaged, the more they're going to try to smear the alternative system. Yep. And so we have to be prepared for that. And I think that a lot of this comes from, from very poor thinking. When, when, when a, um, a medical uh, society makes a policy recommendation, that is not orthodoxy. To translate into a, that into a, ma a medical mandate of care is absurd. absurd. That, you know, but people, doctors are so intimidated that they did it anyway. Yep, agreed. You know, we, you, know, you talk about, when I think of money, the doctors who are opting out who are not in hospitals, but people like some of our own doctors who have uh, internal medicine and, and they have large practices, they are becoming the concierge practices, which means they won't take insurance because the insurance is so much in on the control, which is great for people who have money who can afford to pay cash. Actually, it turns out, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it yeah. turns yeah. out that that model actually does not require people to be wealthy. That in fact, oh. there's two different considerations for care. One is catastrophic care, which is insurance. And that basically has to average the risk across large numbers of people in order to make the, the premiums for that affordable. But everyday medical care, when, you know, for sore throats and broken legs and all sorts of things that you go to primary care need not be expensive because, and I know physicians who are doing this in the cost of between $60 and $100 a month, that you can see your doctor ad lib whenever you need it and get labs and all this stuff. This is not the cost of major insurance plans 
you know, that, and it becomes affordable for everybody. And, and it's not such a high price thing that people should not think about it. You know, that's a brilliant point, Harvey. I mean, it's encouraging. You, you I've, I've been around New York too long. Hold on. You just <laughs> laid out a model for the average person to provide themselves medical care, which is get cat, maybe catastrophic insurance, right? For that car accident where you need high cost uh, hospital care. But for routine stuff, you're right. A lot of these concierge and telehealth practices that have subscription models, it is affordable. When you look at the policy premiums of what people are paying for, you know, health insurance, it's 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 astounding. Right, right. Yeah. Can we take a few from our, our viewers, please. please? All right. So Rocky wants to know, in your opinion, doctors, how many people worldwide have been harmed or even died as a result of the censorship of evidence-based science during COVID? Well, that's a very indirect question. Large numbers, but it would be very difficult to put a precise number on it. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands or millions probably, but it, it's, you know, it's not definable right. so easily. Incalculable. It's just so large. It's a catastrophe is what I would say. Okay. Kurt wants to know, he says, I'm not vaccinated. And a year ago, I got a mild case of COVID. I took ivermectin for three days and started to feel better. I also went to a local clinic to get an antibody infusion because I had heard that they were using them and they were helpful. I do not hear about anyone using them anymore. Is the antibody infusion the same as the vaccine regarding harming people? Uh, I don't know, Harvey, you could take, I mean, from what I understand of monoclonals, they, you know, they basically with the, the mutagenesis of the virus and the shifting variants, I don't think the monoclonals were keeping up. There may also be other reasons why they're not being used anymore. Um, I don't feel like there was a strong signal of harm around them if used early. I've had clinical experiences of people who I, I never recommended them because I just trusted in my protocols and my patients all did well. Nobody went to the hospital, but I did have a few patients who were nervous and they've got monoclonals day five and six, and they actually got worse. They had significant symptoms after the monoclonals, but I have many. Well, you, have to, you have to remember one thing that, that, What's that? symptoms comes from cytokine responses to infections yep. that all of the, 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 the unpleasantness of a viral respiratory infection is not the virus. It's what the virus makes the body do, yep. you know, yep. and it's, it's, it can be really unpleasant, but those aren't the life-threatening things. The life-threatening things are, are when people get hospitalized because they can't breathe. That's what we, we desperately struggle to prevent. Yeah. But, but Harvey, I don't think the monoclonals, there's no more monoclonals in use anymore. That's my understanding. Yeah, that's mine too. So I don't know the exact reason why, but I, I'm assuming that uh, the virus is outpacing their ability to develop, manufacture, and distribute uh, monoclonals that have efficacy against uh, these these variants. Or it's not cost effective to do that. Right. Right. Too too expensive. One, by the way, we're at, we're almost at the top of the hour. Can you guys go like ten more minutes? Sure. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, Elena Suna asks. Are there upcoming COVID variants, if you know, that we need to be aware of that respond more or less to different medicines? And then she comments, it's so sweet to see these wonderful humans talking together. So the answer is no, actually. The answer is no, surprisingly no, that uh, a remarkable event has actually happened that kind of goes underneath the radar, which is that the current variant that we've been experiencing, XBB.1.5, is taking its time and it seems to have found a niche in the population 
that nothing has been able to outcompete it for infectivity, none of the other mutant strains. So there have been mutant strains that have started to grow against it and then went back down and did not compete with it. And, and it, it's pushed out the BQ strains and those pushed out the, the BA4 and BA5 strains. This is the normal evolution of, of substrains, but for some reason, the XBB.1.5 has spent the last three months growing to saturate all or almost all over 90% of the infections now and doesn't seem to be getting pushed out by anything. And this is really fascinating because this may very well be the end or close to the end endemic status of the infection. Harvey, that's really interesting, though, what you just said, because I haven't really been thinking about that because we have had full saturation of variants that have been displaced. Are you arguing that the time over which XBB has been predominating and, and it's kind of uh, duration that this may be the end variant? Yes, I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, okay. That it could be. I like it. That, that it, over, the, over three months, you start to expect to see other things pushing back against it. And that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't for happened. Reason. Great point. I really like that. Thank you. Wonderful. Let's hope. Um, Robert Ole wants to know if you have the COVID shot, is there any way to get rid of the lipid nanoparticles once they are in your body? How long do they last in the body? Okay, that is, uh, oh, that's a common question. So we have theories of mechanisms in which we think that you can rid yourself of. We usually talk in terms of spike. I mean, the studies that have been done have shown a durability that you can find mRNA in the body from the vaccine. You can find spike protein in the body. Um, I'm not, maybe Harvey is not quite aware of studies that have looked for the lipid nanoparticles. Remember, that's how that the mRNA is delivered. But really, we think most of the, the disease or illnesses are caused by spike, and most of the catastrophic deaths are caused by spike protein. Um, how do you get rid of spike? I mean, we 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 propose in our kind of uh, protocols is that autophagy, right? Which is the process that the it, it's it's what the body undergoes when you fast, right? So either intermittent or prolonged fast. What it, that triggers is this process of like um, renewal and regeneration. And so old or diseased cells are actually uh, degraded and sort of attacked by the immune, uh, immune system. And so it's a kind of a process of healing. So we definitely think autophagy. There are prob there are other things that break down spike like natokinase, bromelain. Um, ivermectin binds to spike. I don't know if it aids in the ridding of the body, but but I got to tell you, we have no clinical data. There's no clinically available test that measures level of spike for which you could test therapies or treatments or approaches where we can definitively say if your spike level is this high, do this, and it goes down. Um, unfortunately, you know this is again my my cynicism and 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 uh, despair is that. There's no studies doing, I mean, maybe there are people doing some studies, but there's, you know, there, there's not a concerted funding effort by our government to address this problem of those who are vaccinated, who are at risk of either sudden cardiac events, which we know there's tons of them, and or these chronic illnesses that I take care of, which is these chronic vaccine injury syndromes and, 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 and how to address spike. So again, it's, I would say it's somewhat theoretical. I will tell you privately in my clinical experience, I do believe intermittent fasting has an effect. 
um, on, on mitigating the effects of that vaccine, um, as well as some other agents. Well, I think the supplements you mentioned are also useful that it's hard to tell when you give these kinds of patients supplements for a, a month or two and they start getting better, um, whether they would have gotten better anyway, you know? Um, so it, 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 this is all empirical. And when we're in the wild west of, of new medicine and, you know, in, in this topic, and the only thing you can do is, is try and, and see and develop clinical experience. And unfortunately, the first patients that you get don't have the benefit of your clinical wisdom that accrues over time. Yeah, no, and, and you're, you're absolutely right about, you know, when you, especially with chronic illnesses, what is the impact of different treatments? You know, I, I will say, but like you just said, uh, Harvey, it really is clinical experience. I mean, I've been in practice for a year. I've seen hundreds of patients. My partner's seen even more. You know, we do, the patients that come to us have been quite ill for a long time. I mean, the vaccines were rolled out almost, you know, over two years ago now, right? We're getting patients who've been injured for two years, and they've been terribly ill for a long time. And so you you do have this chronic baseline to work from where they really haven't improved. And so on the, some of those, you can be a little bit more confident on the impacts, but you're right. It, there's, always, there's always a question on whether it was a tincture of time or whether it was your, your intervention, but- um, Well, there's two different was, things you're talking about. One is the, the presence of the spike protein or the mRNA or whatever that's still in tissues. And the second is the damage that those spike pr proteins have caused in terms of cell death and inflammation in yep. those tissues. And for every organ that gets affected that way, you have that unique um, disease con condition of that patient for, for a damaged organ. So if, if it's heart, if it's nervous system, if it's kidney or whatever, each yep. of those becomes a syndrome. And you may not be able to treat very well the, the chronic damage of the inflammation or, or cell injury that's been caused because that kind of damaged it. And, and if the organ doesn't regrow the, that kind of tissue, then you're stuck with it. But on the other hand, if it's relatively early and the spike is still there and you can try to get rid of it and they're, they're partially symptomatic and not very, you might have a better chance at it. That's just kind of general medical reasoning. Agreed, agreed. Here's a clinical question from somebody. Um, says, what can you suggest for a 74-year-old healthy non-smoking male who is vaccinated with two doses of Pfizer and boosted in the summer of 21. He was diagnosed with a blood clot in his lungs two days after knee replacement surgery. After getting worse, he went into the hospital in late February with COVID-19 and blood clots in his lungs and pneumonia. He was given dexamethasone for infection and IV blood thinners for the blood clot. He refused remdesivir. After four days of refusing remdesivir, they discharged him, saying, since he wouldn't take it, there's nothing they can do because it all works together. He is on medicine for blood clots, but he is still getting worse. Increased coughing and lung congestion. Do you have any specific recommendations for critical care at home? Thank you. You, Betsy, I really can't. I, I really don't can't like answer those. It, 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 that really would, would would require like like a visit. I, I need much more context and yep. timing. Okay. You know, I, I so he was in yeah. February. Where we're now in March. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'd rather not give specific advice. I, I, 
You need to see a doctor, right? I, I really do. And I can't really promote my practice, but we do take care of patients post-COVID. Um, I think a lot of other telehealth providers on the website do. Uh, they're, they're much more familiar with how to address it. My sense is that maybe steroids were stopped too early if he's got predominantly pulmonary symptoms. And it's really unfortunate what the, what he relates. I mean, the, I, I literally just want to punch my fist through a wall to hear that kind of stuff. Yeah. They, he's claiming that they discharged him because he's basically not adherent to their protocol. And yeah. that therefore, it, and it all works together is complete nonsense. But yeah. let's just stay off of that. I'm sorry. Okay. I can't really be more helpful there. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Uh, another Kathy Fuller wants to know, is there any indication of ele elevated blood pressure months after natural infection? in individuals who previously had lower normal blood pressure. Have you seen we've anything seen like that? that? We've seen that after the vaccine in some, we've seen hypertension. In fact, uh, just to use an N of one, uh, Robert Malone talks about it. He developed malignant hypertension after his vaccine. Um, I, I don't know that I am aware of, uh, maybe Harvey, you can help me here. I, I'm not aware of papers associating new onset hypertension after natural COVID infection. You know, in medicine, anything is possible. It may sure. not be likely, but when you're stuck with it, it it's still possible. Yeah. Okay. okay. Here's another question that's clinical, and then I'm going to get one for our numbers man over here. Question seven from a viewer, have you seen an abundance of HPV cancers since the shots? Uh, we have a 50-year-old family member with sudden onset of HPV cancer stage four in the throat, now in the lungs. There is increasing amounts of data, both uh, clinical, observational, and epidemiologic showing a, a huge increase in cancers. And, you know, Ryan Cole in his practice has seen an explosion in cancers in ever younger people without risk factors. And, and there's lots of good mechanisms to explain why that would occur after vaccine. So whoever's asking that question, um, it's a big deal. I, I mean, I've been talking, I have a couple of, I, I call them informants, but I have this one yeah. nurse that I talk to who works inside of a big academic medical center. And what she's describing to me in the cancer center is nothing short of disturbing, remarkable. I mean, she's telling me that they're seeing younger and younger patients with advanced cancers. They're seeing so many cancer patients that their infusion suites for chemotherapy, they've run out of room and scheduling. So they actually, some doctors are trying to create infusion suites in their offices and that the ORs are full. And then case managers that follow cancer patients, their normal census over like a quarter would be like 300 patients, two to 300 patients. Some of their censuses of cancer patients they're following are going up to a thousand. And again, I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but the, the data on cancer is truly alarming. In my practice, I haven't seen cancer, but again, I do telehealth and you know that's not something I generally can diagnose on telehealth. I, I treat more symptoms than 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 findings but anyway so actually Harvey, can you add to that yes yeah, so uh, this has been my academic career for the last 40 years well except for covid is cancer etiology and and so on and cancers take longer than the pandemic has been around so far so for example blood cancers leukemias lymphomas are the shortest duration cancers and multiple myeloma and 
Hodgkin's lymphoma and things like that. So those could possibly start now being in excess if they were caused by the vaccines or by COVID for that matter. And so if, if you were saying we're seeing an excess of these in numbers, then I would believe that. The solid tumors take longer. The shortest solid tumor that I'm aware of is lung cancer, which my estimates are it takes about five years to grow from when the cancer is initiated to when it comes to diagnosis. It can take longer, but on the order of five years. So many cancers take longer. Pancreas takes 11 to 15. Uh, bladder cancer takes 15 to 20 or 25. Colon cancer takes 25 or 30. Harvey, can I push back on you a bit? Sure. Because I think you need to talk about what you know of turbo cancer. Because what you're talking about is a traditional models and behavior of cancer. I totally agree with you. But uh, again, I'm faced with a lot of anecdotes of, by the way, the word turbo cancer never existed. It never existed until COVID. But I, I, I am literally hearing of many, many cases of cancers behaving in ways that I've never heard of, never heard of, Harvey. So what I suspect is that two things. Number one, that cancers that normally would have uh, that are already existing and growing yep. slowly become unleashed and grow faster. Correct. So many of these, or at least some of these, are people who really do have the cancer anyway, and they would have lived longer until it became diagnosed. But but still, I mean, that's not much of a consolation, but still, these are things that are have already had their lead time, that, so they've already been going on for five or whatever years or 10 years, and now they're just being pushed into the uh, diagnosis. The second is that it's entirely possible that people develop cancer cells all the time and the immune system sees them as foreign and attacks them and takes them out. And it's only when something that damage, damages immune surveillance allows cancers to grow beyond the point where the immune system can take them out. And that very well could be happening also so I'm glad you said that, Harvey, because that's 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 my understanding is that the, all of these effects on the immune system and on the you know tumor surveillance ability to control you know the growth of cancer that 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 seems to be broken because that's the only thing that can explain what I'm hearing and seeing uh, really hearing from people. I, I'm literally deluged with cases that are terrifying. I know, I but I don't I don't know that the cancers are growing intrinsically faster because of that. They are they maybe are growing faster at the beginning because they they kind of might percolate around for five years battling the immune system until they suddenly escape just like mutant you know viruses escape uh it, it takes some time and randomness and chance before that happens and maybe now that's short-circuited so now that it's only three months before that happens in those people yeah but, I, you know, I, after I it's still growing cancers, slowly I, I like i said i don't believe the cancers are growing faster i think the ability of the body to suppress control or limit um, is what, what seems to have been affected. That's possible. Yeah. Gentlemen, we've run out of time. Yeah. We have a lot to go through a lot of, I have a lot of really interesting announcements. I think including, we have to have Harvey back. Oh, we have to have him back. <laughs> this was a great program. A lot of Thank good you. information. And I've got three or four questions that would be fabulous for you to answer, but we, we've run out of time and we want everybody to stay through to the end. We have an incredible my story at the tail end of this, but too many, too many good things. 
to talk about. And thank you. Thank you, Harvey Pierre. We, we just wanted to know if you can say anything about the fact that you testified in Maryland and Wisconsin, anything <laughs> to share? So if uh, for the listeners who don't know, um, you know, we, we, we've been really all working hard. We've been publishing, we've been public speaking, we do webinars. We, we, we really try to get the truth out. And and we're trying to protect people from these dangerous policies and really bad science, some of which we talked about uh, tonight with Harvey. And But, you know, ultimately, you know, it's a little bit sounds like shouting into the wind. I think it really matters with, with legislation. And so I, in the last two days, I had the opportunity to testify in the Maryland State Legislature uh, in support of a bill which would outlaw COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And... Um, uh, I would say I, I performed honorably well. You did, you know, indeed. I was given a two-minute opening statement, and then I was given good questions. And, you know, the thing about these vaccines, I mean, I can hammer them with data, and, and that's what I did. And then in Wisconsin, that was a different thing. I was a much longer, I was given no time limit, and I was allowed to really comment and, and deliver tons of data, which... Even the committee, which was favorable, unfortunately, everything's polarized, but they were favorable um, to us. It, it was a, um, it was a, basically a legislative session around suspending a rule which would mandate the meningococcal vaccine and, and chickenpox vaccine and, and give other powers to the, to the agencies. And, and it was really well attended. The committee really was very receptive to my testimony. And, um, and I went off and I even got into a little metaphorical fist fight with a senator because they you know uh like i said yesterday you, you know propaganda you know hates truth and they go after truth tellers and apparently the truth that i was speaking was not really liked by the senator and she went and she went after me personally and uh let's say i took a little offense and i gave some back i see just a calm <laughs> quiet pierre all right <laughs> oh i was brawling yesterday betsy I, I i was going off so well i'm sorry i wasn't in wisconsin to see it but speaking of wisconsin and senators next week okay well you've already um spoken to a wisconsin senator a bigger uh, u.s senator who is going to be on our program next week uh senator ron johnson talking about national sovereignty the who accord and what you can do about it and we just happen to have a clip that you already um spoke with him about so can we roll that daniel harwitz who thought this was a good idea? Who who wanted to concentrate control in in one organization for the entire globe? Where is this coming from? I'm sorry, I say the, the very same people that uh, so miserably mismanaged our response to uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, it's individuals in the World Health Organization. It's uh, I'm sure people like uh, you know Bill Gates and his foundation. Uh, it's the Fauci's of the world. Uh, and I just use that as kind of you know Fauci's of the world is the, is the a blanket description of, of all these people that, uh, again, just so miserably mismanaged our, our response to COVID. And again, anybody who thinks that that was a successful response, I mean, just take a look at the numbers. More, more than 6 million, according to their own figures, dead from COVID. The, the trillions of dollars uh, in lost uh, uh, economic uh, development, uh, the, the human toll of those shutdowns, what we've done to our children. Uh, and of course now, just, just the assault uh, on individuals who are telling the truth that uh, you know they, they've been injured by these vaccines and they, and they can't get treatment because the federal health agencies, the 
know, are just not acknowledging that vaccine injuries are real. I mean, the pandemic has exposed so much that has been wrong within, you know, again, I, I call it the COVID cartel, the administration, the, the federal health agencies who have been captured by big pharma, uh, big pharma, but also the, the news media who, who have also been captured by big pharma. Um, so we need to recognize what happened. We need to learn from these mistakes and we got to fix it. We, we can't allow these things to continue. Okay, that will be next week when Pierre and Senator Johnson are on. And on the second half of the program, we're going to have Daniel Horowitz, correspondent, special guest. For questions, right, next. Daniel's Yeah, Daniel, absolutely. Bring your questions for Daniel because that guy's that guy's a beast. He knows a ton of stuff. <laughs> next week, so we'll good program then too. Um, now then, what else we have uh, following that, folks? We will welcome back Dr. Liz Mumper. She has just helped create the I Care for Kids protocol and will be on March 22nd to discuss it and to answer your questions. She will also talk about her new video series, Kids Corner with Dr. Liz, which will be premiering the same week. You won't want to miss either one of these important discussions, so make sure to mark your calendars and we will see you right back here uh, with these upcoming webinars. Now then. The other thing you need to know about, of course, is our next FLCCC educational conference is next month already, Emerging Approaches to Treating Spike Protein-Induced Disease is taking place in Fort Worth, Texas, April 28th and 29th. One of our favorite quotes came from A. Bollier, a physician's assistant who attended the first conference in October and said, it felt so good to network with hundreds of like-minded human beings and professionals. This gathering showed that we are no longer a fringe minority. Let's make medicine great again. <laughs> okay. I like it. Well, yeah, we truly did feel great to be around such an incredible group of people and to get to discuss all of the vital information openly and honestly. So we hope you will join us in person next month. And uh, just a reminder, early bird pricing is on for three more weeks until March 28th. So make sure to save a seat now. Now, on that note, we are excited to announce two more featured speakers for the conference, Dr. Suzanne Gazda and Dr. Keith Berkowitz. Most of you already know them by now because they've been here on our weekly webinars and both have spoke at our first conference, but they were so good. We just had to have them back. So make sure to check out flccc.net forward slash conference to read more about these two and all the other speakers and to register now. Going on, our own Dr. Bean has released another episode of Long Story Short. And this one you won't want to miss. It is all about intermittent fasting with brain health including how intermittent fasting may help improve cognitive state, memory, and potentially even stall the, pro the progress of dementia. Important information. And the next few episodes will continue to focus on brain health. Thank you, Dr. Bean. Now, speaking of brains and health, let's bring on and thank the good nurses who've been answering your questions tonight. They're all volunteers, our CR, C, CRNA, Christina Maros. Did I get that right? You did. And, all right. RN's 
Scott, Pamela, Samantha, Stephanie, back here, wonderful volunteers. Were you busy? Yeah, we had 94 questions. We answered them all tonight. That's wonderful. We thank you so much. And we thank you for volunteering your time to do this. You're great. And I must say we're, because we're running late, we're going to move right along. Um, We have to thank a lot of people. Oh, well, of course we know that our, you heard that Pierre and um, uh, was doing all that testimony and, you know, it, it takes time and effort to do all of this work and the money to get them there and to do to put it together and the legal counsel to make sure that they've got everything right. So when we are doing all of this to protect the rights of patients like you and like me, all of it is vitally important and it costs money but it moves us closer to a better medical future. Your donations help us fight these battles. We thank you. We thank you for all you have done, all you have given. We couldn't do any of this without you. So thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, we just want to wrap it up with an incredible my story. This comes from a man named Tommy. We know you're going to love it as much as we do. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the week. We will see you right back here next Wednesday. But listen to Tommy's story. And good night. Uh, Hi, my name is Tommy Blake, and my story goes back to January 2020. I pulled the ductwork out of a customer's home and I rapidly had to rebuild that ductwork and then COVID hit. It was a cold winter. Um, COVID just started. I wanted to keep the workers, the owners, and myself safe and I really didn't know what to do. I was sort of in a jam. I could not find anything in the U.S. I went global. I found a study in Peru a great study. It was uh, 1,200 people that were part of it. 800 doctors and nurses took ivermectin and not one of the 800 got sick. And that got my attention. I found similar stories around the world. So later in 2020, I heard Dr. Corey uh, when he spoke to Congress, the U.S. Congress. And so in 2021, that's when I latched on to FLCCC and So that was in the face of uh, local medical providers here in my little community because I was given three passionate 10-minute speeches from three different, well, two doctors and one pharmacist that I should get the vaccine and I should not use ivermectin. They actually, uh, without, I can't remember the words, but were trying to tell me I was crazy. I never got the vaccine. I did not. I did get ivermectin and the other meds per FLCC protocol. I got those early on, and I've been on those early on now. But I woke up one morning, I had a burning fever, and by midday it was over 102, and my head and heart, uh, upper chest had like a heartbeat. I felt like it was going to explode. I knew it was something different. So. By mid-morning, I added to the ivermectin, I think they called it some hospital dosage or whatever, so I I ramped it up 
By six o'clock that night, I had a sort of a strange reversal in the burning fever. It was, it was like a plateau or something. And, and by nine o'clock, I only had half a degree of the fever left. The next day, I was totally wiped out, but I felt normal. And after a few more days, I was back to work. By the way, I was 67 at the time. From that point on, two of my three children and my wife followed the FLCC protocols, uh, working with Dr. Hader, actually. And in my small town uh, and in my church, I saw a lot of people getting sick. It was like 20 of them getting sick, one after the other. Two of them died. Both of those were in the hospital. The families were not permitted to see them in the hospital. I hope I can make it through this story at this point. But people heard my story because I became adamant and they were asking me to help them as they had COVID. So I'd help them to, uh, I'd help the COVID sick to get ivermectin. Um, we had them connect to Dr. Hader to get their prescriptions. And then my wife and I would go to the store, we'd get the vitamins, we'd get the uh, everything they needed for his medical accessories. And it was amazing. It was amazing. I've never seen a community team effort like this. Um, people were appreciative. Here's what, here are two examples, and I have a lot of examples because I worked with a lot of people. A friend um, told me three weeks after her COVID, I just happened to give her a call that she was still deathly sick. She was on three prescripts of prednisone, three antibiotics, her pulmonary doctor told her to go home and die. Um, so I went to her and gave her the FLCCC protocols. And then with the ivermectin and the vitamin C, she turned around in six weeks. She was well enough, pretty, pretty well to be on vacation. She continues to be well to this day. Also, New Year's Eve, um, a coworker had COVID. It was somebody that just kind of heard um, and um, by midnight, my wife and I had picked up the meds and everything, got it to him. Two days later, he texted, said he was 80% better. So what I found is the common denominator, in addition to everyone having brain fog, was that early starts on the protocols and the ivermectin killed the, I call it, killed the COVID within hours. So sometimes I was called in late, maybe a week or so later after it had started. The ivermectin always worked, but it took a little bit longer when you would get on it a week later. I just wanted to say bless you, thank you, at FLCCC, the nurses, the doctors, the people that donate to FLCCC. You have inspired, you have inspired me and my wife to help others. Yep, I know God, proper medicine, the doctors at FLCCC, Dr. Hader, you've saved a lot of people here. Heroes you are. Thank you. Good day.